to a very special edition of the March Mad Men podcast. As always, I am your host, John Evans, but tonight I am joined by my very good friend and former writing partner, Karen Craig. Karen and I worked together, uh, oh, about 10, 15 years ago, and uh, she's written a couple of produced films and a, and a bunch more scripts. Uh, you may know her from American Psycho 2, All-American Girl, or uh, Forbidden Secrets. And, uh, yeah, she was uncredited on quite a, a few other things. But, uh, Karen, it's great to have you uh, with us tonight. And um, I, I thought of you when I, when I knew we were talking about Black Christmas for a while on the show because... Um, you and I go back to the, the turn of the century, just about, <laughs> and I remember uh, from the beginning, you talked about how much uh, this was an important movie for you. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, yes, Black Christmas is one of the films that made me want to be a screenwriter. It's an inspirational film, I think, for a lot of people, and I feel like, you know, knowing your creative sensibilities and... Obviously, you know, being really familiar with with your writing, I, I, you know, I see it as as you know one of the the influences that give you part of your edge as a writer. Anybody who's read my writing or knows me knows I'm all about tone and atmosphere and creating those moments and taking the time to get there, and that's Black Christmas. Black Christmas does that. That's something that stuck with me. Yeah, it reminds me of that that great open in our script that uh, you you wrote originally. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wrote some too. I wrote some, obviously, but we took your open from something else and stuck it on the front of our script. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> we did, <laughs> and it built it built such mood and atmosphere. It was uh, it was fantastic. Right? Oh my gosh! I wish that had been filmed. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, we 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 got reasonably close to to getting that movie into production, but man, it was a it was a long oh. hard road. <laughs> yeah, it was a battle. <laughs> How many? <laughs> Not with us. <laughs> yeah, no, we were fine. But uh, <laughs> How many completely different versions of that movie do you think we wrote that could have been their own movie and all existed in the universe at the same time with a few modifications? Oh my gosh, too many. Like <laughs> seriously probably eight or nine mm -hmm. but we did i think it was 18 drafts for different directors or producers or agents it had to be at least yeah, three or crazy. three or four completely different takes that were just you yeah. know an entirely dif different antagonist different premise mostly different well, premise yeah yes and mm -hmm. every time they sent us away how do we grab them again? Yeah. What twist can we do? How can we take them down a journey that they haven't been on? And yeah, and we went there. I'm so proud of us for that. So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I I think awesome. they were it was they were good movies too. We did a good job, but See, oh well. <laughs> we're, we're we're a little biased, but yeah. <laughs> we we got a little bit of money for it, but a lot of gray hair. So. Yeah, that's Hollywood. Too too soon, Gray. Yeah, we, soon, Gray. we were we were too young at that point, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we had it. <laughs> Don't tell people we're <laughs> they're gonna know we're older. Well, we were teenagers then, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Just had a diapers, actually. Yeah. Now Hollywood will come knocking again. <laughs> <laughs> now that they think we're yeah in our early thirties, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the business at hand. Uh, tell me, like. Your first experiences with Black Christmas, 
And do you remember anything about that that watch or the the first couple of watches? I was young. I had to be, I, I think I was 11 and there was a snowstorm and I lived in Toronto at the time, which is where it was filmed. That's right. And we lived in a house that was similar to the sorority house. So it was so cool to be like in the middle of this blizzard almost and be curled up, huddled together with my sister. Because my sister is the one who introduced me to horror films. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She is so awesome. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we just hunkered down. We had all the lights off and we had candles. And that because the power hadn't gone out yet. So it was perfect timing. And we watched it. And I have never been so scared in my life like I was afraid to go upstairs I was afraid (laughs) of the attic and then the phone because the phone ring is so distinct yet it's what everybody's phone sounded like back then right and everybody still sort of had a rotary phone at least in one room of your house you usually had one Mm -hmm. okay I just gave away my age again (laughs) (laughs) I just remember being so enthralled by it being Christmas because I loved Christmas and it was actually scary. Oh yeah. Did it ruin Christmas a little bit in a fun way? (laughs) In a fun way. Yes. (laughs) Because every time I would hear Christmas songs, I think about that because that's how it opens even like iconic Christmas songs, one that you Mm -hmm. love singing. And we used to go around caroling and things like that. So I, I just, I felt the world. And I knew the world. And it was also, it was Canadian. Yes. So I loved that movie. To this day, I could watch it 50 times over and not get bored of it. Absolutely. It's really got that timeless kind of universal quality. It it holds up really well. And, And the balance of feeling both of its time and, you know, set in a credibly different time and place that are unique and convincing for that that time and place, that setting, but also in ways that just feel so relevant to today and we can all relate to to the ideas of it and the culture and the characters and the dynamics. It's it's still so recognizably North American culture and our the way we live and our our rituals and yeah, the things that we take for granted as safe and the festive trappings of the holidays just always kind of took on like a little bit of a darker tinge after seeing yeah. this movie having that that sanctity of christmas be completely violated during the holidays there's also a sense of loneliness yeah sometimes yeah that is captured so well that even though you're surrounded by all these people you are still isolated one of the things that's always stuck with me were the different issues that faced each of the women. And to me, at that age, it was an empowering film because it showed that they still had choices and they could be strong. And to put them in a situation where they're confronted by this creepy call coming in all the time, it it was remarkable to me. As a girl growing up, I remember getting a couple of those types of calls. Mm-hmm. They were never as disturbing as Billy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. But you'd get like the heavy breather or the the man who would call back and he would just say these gross things to you. As a female, you, you wouldn't really know, Do I can I hang up on him or not? And 
that showed me you can always hang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can run out the door. <laughs> What's funny, though, is in this movie, they never do hang up on him, right? <laughs> they don't. The reason I like that, though, is that it's justifiable later on. Yeah. At first you get it because it's a sense of fascination for all the girls. They're all disturbed yeah. by it, but they're oddly fascinated by hearing what he's going to say. Yes. And then later, it's she keeps him on the phone specifically to try to trace it. So I don't feel like it's unjustified. Like, that's something the movie does so brilliantly, too, is that everything feels natural, real, and is justified and honestly earned. None yeah. of it feels forced or fake or um, contrived. The characters are real. The dialogue is real. You feel the moment, even the way it's shot. You feel like you're there. You're experiencing this. And I think that's one of the things that really resonates. It's so immersive. That POV camera, you know, sometimes it's definitely Billy's POV. Sometimes it's an unknown POV. And sometimes it's just the perspective of of the movie but kind of in a dynamic moving way like i'm thinking of that final shot for example where the camera roves past the rooms that the the girls lived in that are now dead yeah and, and then kind of tracks to the ladder that leads up to the attic and we start to hear billy up there and then we we go up to where Claire is still in the rocking chair. And it, it kind of feels like it's almost all one shot, even though there's a little movie magic in there as we then move outside of the house and drift away from the scene of this. And the phone starts ringing again. Oh, and... no, not the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back to the phone really right? quick, because I did want to ask you something yeah. else about you were talking Sorry. about the characters and their behavior and how, how believable it is and everything. But... The fact that you, you touched on that back then phones were just jangling. Like they didn't have a soft ring. I don't remember. Yeah, I was very little, but I don't remember like a volume control. Maybe they had it, but they would just be loud and this jangling trill. And of course, the movie exaggerates it a bit. But, it, you know, it's just it's basically disruptive. And as soon as we had the technology to do musical ringtones or, you know, <laughs> pleasant ringtones, we immediately started right. doing it. Sound. Yeah. Like nobody, unless they're having fun with it, wants that sound now. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> no, it's a jarring, unsettling sound. And the minute you hear it, you feel, OK, trouble. Yes. It's a very... I think it was, obviously, I don't know why they made phones in that way, but obviously it's because you could be anywhere and you would hear it. But it was never welcoming. And I think showing the sorority house with a, that type of phone really exemplified what was going on, that it was, this was going to be uncomfortable for everyone. Even the, even the long distance calls where you're like, where she's trying to talk to Barb's mother. Mm-hmm who's calling long distance, I can't hear you. You get it. All of it is unsettling from the get-go. And that's why they always have to answer the phone, because it could be family, you know, from around mm -hmm. the country who's calling. They're just very motivated that they always pick up the phone. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. And, and honestly, there weren't answering machines, so it's not like you let it go to voicemail or record it on tape or anything. You had to. Right, or you just missed the call, yeah. Exactly. In and with so many kids in the house, yeah. <laughs> There's so much that works in the film. That everything is true. 
yeah. to the era. And I don't feel like they manipulated to get to different things. So they didn't manipulate the girls having to answer. Right. Today, you just wouldn't answer and you'd, you know, see their number <laughs> and call them back and or tell the police <laughs> the number and that would be it. A lot of things are, are simpler with our technology today. Mm-hmm. Um, something else you were talking about, the, you know, how disturbing the, the phone is, but the score also has one of the more disturbing motifs I, I can think of, which is that piano technique Untuned. that... Yeah. yeah, it sounds very off-key. Prepared piano, that's what it is, yeah. And apparently John Cage is known for doing this. Like, he would tie forks and, you know, silverware and, and objects oh, and stuff. Great. Yeah, and it would interfere with the strings as as he would play, and it would create these weird kind of rippling effects that I thought, you know, just hearing the movie for this podcast watch... Um, I hadn't really focused on it in that way in many years, and so I actually thought it might have been a harp, but no, it's a piano. Um, but there's, it has that kind of quality. It captures the the nerve jangling spirit. It goes back to the phone, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It goes back to the phone, and also it's a harbinger in this film. Whenever you hear mm-hmm. that certain cue you know, uh uh-oh, Billy's on the move and something bad is going to (laughs) happen to somebody. (laughs) Right? But it also foreshadows Peter. Right. Because Peter's the pianist. Peter's the one that destroys the piano. And we hear those tones and when he's destroying the piano. That's right. So it it just echoes through to he's got to be the bad guy. I hadn't thought of that connection, but that's great. Now, that's a great topic. Let's talk about him, the red herring plot for a while. What did you make of all that? And do you remember ever thinking that, yeah, he could be Billy before you had seen the whole film that many times? The first time, I definitely thought it might be Billy because they also do a great thing with the the shadows where it shows the flip of the hair, which is very similar to what Peter's hair looks like. Mm. So, cause I always, when, when I read something and they'll show us a shape of, of the character, I always look for those little clues uh, to match it to a character. Cause my mind just, you know, I want to know, <laughs> I want to know early. Wow. Um, That's interesting. So you were kind of all those glimpses of the silhouette of Billy, you were immediately kind of applying that to characters like Peter to see, could that be his yes. silhouette? Ah, yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they do a really good job with the red herring. Um, and I think they also do a good job of taking it away when she's like, oh, it couldn't be him because he was here when the call came in. So it's right. definitely not him. But then in the back of our minds, we're thinking, well, he was asleep, supposedly. Right. Then when we learn later that the calls are coming from in the house, we can see how she thinks it's him. So, And then when he finds her in the base, I still that's the, the only thing mm-hmm. I don't understand the logic of, of him knowing she's in the basement. The fact that he goes from window to window to look for her instead of going inside the house that's the only logic problem i'm assuming the the door wasn't unlocked wasn't locked right so if he was there for her the front door like why why didn't he like he ends up breaking a window to get into the basement 
He does. Yeah. Like, it's creepy. Like, okay, I will say this. <laughs> Regardless of the fact that he is not the killer, he's a creepy guy. Yeah. Like, he's got some serious issues, and I always felt like and still feel like he's on the verge of breaking. Yeah. He just needed, like, one more tightening of the screw, and I, I do think he would have hurt her. I, I think he would have even potentially killed her out of a fit of passion. Yeah, I guess that's really what the movie needed to do was like they the backstory works really well to push this guy to the point where he's going to behave in a way that might be consistent mm-hmm. with someone you have to worry about, whether it's that killer or, you know, another killer, right? Like he is in a, a point of extremity where he's destroyed his musical ambitions he mm-hmm. somehow like this idea he becomes obsessed with having this baby with her and meanwhile like not only is she not going to have the baby she's like pretty clearly breaking up with him too or about yes. to and so those are classic ingredients fuel on on the fire of a potentially violent turn in this man yes so yeah. I can get behind, like, yeah, I never thought of it, actually. Like, well, why exactly? Like, how does he get to the point where he's peering in those windows? I assume he decides to break the window when he actually sees her. Like, I'm pretty sure that's why he breaks the window. He thinks he sees her, yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think he... I, I can get behind that at that point he's so desperate to get to her before she has this abortion or whatever he thinks. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so urgent that he find her that like he's he's going in there and of course you know the sort of irony of it all is that he has no idea the situ- actual situation and that yeah. that you know she is going to take this as a pretty strong sign that he is unhinged and hell you know like it could very well not be a coincidence yeah. that people are dying and he's unhinged right so yes. i understand both of them make some kind of tragic, I guess you could say, misreads of the situation. Because I would point out that Claire disappears but is actually murdered um, well before he tell um, he gets the news that 100%. that yeah. Jess doesn't is pregnant and doesn't want to have the baby. Okay, so I think that's the big clue, at least to the audience. I agree. Yeah, that yeah. it's not him. My thing with it is that they do a really good job of of building up the red herring with him that you're like, well, maybe there's something else I don't know. Right. And right. that's why. Because it's also weird that he's sleeping in her house before she's even told him anything of that. Like, before anything, he's sound asleep in her room and he comes creeping down the stairs. Like, that's weird. I almost feel like I'm just, it is. I'm just giving the movie too much credit in the sense that, like, yeah, it seems so real and so grounded and so authentic. Like, I'm not coming at it as a movie movie, but if Mm -hmm. you're just thinking, like, the history of movies, we have had, surprise, it's the killer, like in a Scream movie (laughs) or something, right? Um, You're right. With much, much less... actual build up and clues and psychological motivation than this movie 
legitimately gives this guy. <laughs> I agree, 100%. <laughs> if it had just been, oh, and by the way, you didn't know, but I wasn't an institution, and I thought that <laughs> meeting you and playing my music would straighten me out, but I've been on a downward spiral. You know, like, you could one speech, and they would have been like, oh, yeah, it was him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'd have been hit over the head with it, too. So. <laughs> yeah. And that was my main, like, not that I'm critical of this movie, but as Rich and Vic and I really went scene by scene and spent literally mm-hmm. hours coming through the movie, the, oh the thing that I was tracking and kind of, you know, stuck on was, does this uh, whodunit plot work? And I did find these many points of evidence that should fairly definitively eliminate him as this this killer but the movie just resolutely keeps giving you reasons to distrust him and then ultimately i mean there is a big payoff in that the fact that she murders peter and mm-hmm. jess murders peter we don't know we don't see it you know, maybe it plays out in purely self-defense fashion i don't know but she kills peter and then the result of that is that she pretty much concludes that he was the killer the police conclude that he was the killer they wrap up the case they leave her in bed asleep and you know this is how presumably our protagonist meets a unfortunate end yes yeah well how do you feel about that though how do you feel about that ending i love it do you feel like it was (laughs) yeah me too yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask if you felt it was justified the way that they um I think they did a really good job of getting everybody out of the house and you can yeah. understand how it just kind of, she got lost in the process of everybody else thinking somebody else sort of had it was going to watch her. Right. Right. Or that there was no need at that point. Yeah. You know, uh, because we know we, we saw how Lieutenant Fuller, John Saxon gradually becomes, you know, dog, like a dog with a bone on the theory as police mm-hmm. often do that it is Peter, you know, and he's able to, in his mind, make the unfortunate decision that, okay, yeah, you know, one plus one is two. Uh, I see what happened here. Let's go home. Yeah. You know, and that poor guy's been up, like, I don't know when he last slept, but <laughs> <laughs> like, like, uh, we see him all day and then all night. So uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a long shift for, for Lieutenant Fuller. <laughs> but no, but I, I love sleep. the ending. Now he can go sleep peacefully until yeah. he finds out that she's, Oof. well, we assume she's murdered. You know, it, it's technically open-ended, but what what do we know about Billy and people who are asleep? Are the people who are asleep I... safe? <laughs> <laughs> well, totally, that phone calls. He calls after every murder. Yes. Yeah, there is so... a, a correlation between yeah. a timing, a cycle, if yep. you will, mm-hmm, that he goes through. Uh, no, but I, I love dark, nihilistic, twisted endings that are, mm-hmm. you know, that leave something to the imagination. And but and yet, like, the implications are just a sledgehammer to your heart, right? Right? They <laughs> really are. Those are they my really favorite are. horror movie endings. Yeah. You know, I'm fine with the occasional, the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And, you know, she's swinging the chainsaw triumphant. And, you know, we need we need endings like that, too. But we do. But but I also love the ending of movies like Session Nine and uh-huh. <laughs> Oh gosh, Session Nine. 
Yeah, that's another <laughs> another thing Karen and I share. <laughs> Unfortunately, Vic and and Rich were were not as enthusiastic about session nine. It's it's really? too bad. Yeah. Maybe it's been so many years since it was made and they didn't see it when it first came out, so it didn't have the same impact. I don't know. Yeah. But I uh... I know you love it. Yeah. I mean, we could do our own podcast about that sometime. Maybe we will. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, yeah, like you, me and Mike share a lot more of the same taste than me, Rich and, and Vic, which I guess makes for an interesting incarnation of the podcast in that a lot of the time I'm just sort of fighting the good fight either you know for my movies or against their movies oh no yeah but hey you know friction i guess makes for an entertaining podcast that's the fun of horror you know there are all different types of horror that hit audiences differently and everyone's a fan in one way or another and it opens it up to so much debate and yeah it does that's why you have a podcast yep (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's one reason, one reason. When we're talking about the the character decision-making and it all feeling so believable and not contrived, one thing, and I, I don't have a problem with it, but one thing that could conceivably annoy people would be the fact that Jess picks up that poker and goes back up the stairs at the end instead of doing what the police are literally begging her to do which is just walk out the front door and i know she doesn't know that her friends are dead and that works for me but what do you think about it i actually like it Mm -hmm. because like i I know everybody's like get out the door don't go in there don't go in there but she's already established herself as strong yes and she's not a leave a person behind thing and especially if she thinks she can save them she will that's why i don't have a problem with it but I think if she were not a such a dynamic character and she weren't so proactive about things, then I think I would feel differently. If she were more vulnerable and couldn't take care of herself, I would wander out the door. Right. She's already shown such strength, you know, at different points. Mm-hmm. Like, just even this really difficult situation that she's in with Peter, and, and she's just, you know, not going to be pushed into a life that she doesn't want and uh, even under intense pressure emotional pressure Mm -hmm. you know that's one of the things i love and i i loved it back then that she was like i know you want to give up your dreams and you all of a sudden want this like happy life with us in a in a home somewhere where i'm chained to the stove (laughs) and she's like no just because you don't want your dreams i still want mine it's a great scene that was Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's just, it's everything you want. It's just, it was so empowering for women. As contrary to belief as that is for a lot of people that a a slasher film Mm -hmm. could be empowering to women, it's right there. And it it taught so many people so many things. At least for me, it did. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that this movie gets a lot of attention for is it's frank and unflinching depiction at that time of a woman deciding not to have a baby Mm -hmm. you know and that wasn't something that that wasn't a situation that people felt comfortable 
dealing with in movies and TV very often. And, and, and especially on that, on that side of the decision. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's great. And I, I also think that her going back in the house is sort of this proto final girl kind of a thing, you know? That's yes. 100%. And it was sort of the first final girl. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't a virgin. She right. made strong choices. She wasn't a wallflower that needed to be protected that all of a sudden had to stand up for herself and fight back. All those she cliches. A, yes. Part of me, especially because I, I just rewatched this for our conversation, part of me wonders, why did that dynamic change so dramatically? Yeah. Yeah. Where, like, why did we get into that that? The virginal girl with the books and the who's nerdy, like as the archetype. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like you have virgin, like even the screen movies, you have to be a virgin if you want to survive. Yeah, like because the template had been so established, right? Yeah, and in this movie, you know, it's the the girl getting an abortion is the hero. Yeah, Uh, she would often be the first one killed in movies and a lot of the male characters weren't the smartest people in the room (laughs) far from it (laughs) (laughs) right like even even our loving alcoholic house mother Mm -hmm. she was smart and savvy she liked her alcohol and it was a little (laughs) carol burnett at times but she was still smart and on the ball and she also was smarter than some of the girls in the house like she would play to them but then she had her own thing going on well i wanted men the men that we see are ineffectual and even like this guy who's played very much as a prototypical male lead the lieutenant fuller character you know john saxon even said he liked the way they shot him and stuff to kind of reinforce that that kind of imagery and identity that the character had he's wrong in the most important police work that we ask him to do (laughs) yeah well not only that it goes throughout the entire film because when claire's boyfriend comes Mm -hmm. in the police wouldn't pay attention to the story before they wouldn't help oh yeah there's that idiotic officer who who you know poo-poos the whole story (laughs) right and then doesn't know what fellatio is (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-huh oh my until then Saxon didn't care. He didn't pay attention. And then what also gets me is he pays attention to the male coming into yeah. the police station, but ignores the mother whose child is missing. Ooh, wow. He literally gets up and walks away from her and wants the case file on a missing college girl over a missing child. Because this guy has come into the police station. I'm a little embarrassed to say that went over my head, but wow. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, it, it just, <laughs> well, it's the era. It's, yeah. It plays into everything that was done. Women weren't given a lot of credit. and But this film gives us that, or gave us that. Yes. Well, give it's keep it keeps giving as long as people keep watching this movie watching and talking it? about it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's... Yeah, that's one of the things that that make it special, I think. I mean, and, and, you know, there are people that might say, and I feel like a conservative talk show host. Yeah, but there are people say, but no, um, but but that there's also misogyny. (laughs) There are, you know, there's clearly misogyny at work 
in the film. Not, yes. I don't think from Bob Clark's perspective, but it's happening in the in the film. But at the same time, I think it's put to good thematic use. And the fact that Billy himself, his psychology is so wrapped up with this relationship with women that is just beyond twisted and and specifically with his little sister Agnes and every woman he encounters she's Agnes uh it's quite chilling it is but there's so many questions about Agnes that's why I love those phone calls because you can spend hours just trying to break them apart and figure out what happened I have Well, thank God for uh, subtitles, or I wouldn't have much insight. I will tell you that. (laughs) But yeah, with the subtitles on, I feel like I can put together something of the narrative of what happened in Billy's childhood. Okay, so what do you think happened? I think, I mean, based on the clues that we get, I think that their parents were definitely abusive you know because you can tell from just him doing their voices that they're they're not parents of the year god knows what you know what they were on or drinking or what's going on psychologically but he was left alone with agnes which apparently they already knew was a bad idea and he did something sexual to her and then his terror of being found out or her telling on him specifically led to him doing something worse and potentially hiding her living or dead at that point. I don't know. Maybe it's possible still living at that point, but putting her, hiding her away somewhere at which point the parents get a hold of him and are frantically interrogating him. That's where his mind just completely breaks at that point. Part of me thinks it's that, and then part of me wonders if Agnes is different from the baby, and the baby is oh, a different sibling. Could be. And Billy and Agnes were doing something sexual together, right. but he's like, don't tell them what we did, but then why wouldn't the parents say, where is Agnes? They say, what did you do to the baby? That's an interesting distinction because I did trip over that. And my first thought, and I, I think you've thought one thought beyond that, which is great. But my first thought was just that Agnes was terrifyingly young. And mm-hmm. that just made whatever he did like did. that much worse. Yeah. Right? No, it does. Uh, Either way. It yeah. But I mean, there is there is a scenario where we're talking about three characters, and Agnes was more akin to a teenage girl, you know, whether she was that meant she was seven or eight or you know yeah. seventeen, I don't know, but but that she was older, and then somehow in his response to all of this, that that's when the baby was put in peril. I think that's possible. But I can't draw a d- direct line uh, to it. You can't, which is no. what's so fun to try yeah. to break apart those those calls. I, I for me, the most chilling thing with the calls, besides them, sound absolutely insane. Oh yeah, so unhinged. Is the moment he talks with a flat, definitive voice yes. saying, "I'm going to kill you." Yes. So I, that I, yeah. <laughs> I just put that, I put that at the end of part 
two, I think, of our autopsy because uh, I got the sample in the trailer and I just like edited that yesterday and I... Uh, that will be a long time. People, listeners will have heard that a long time before this, they hear this. But anyway, um, <laughs> it struck me again. Like I was thinking, wow, like that voice is so seemingly lucid. And so we never it talked is. about that on our show. So I'm really glad oh. you brought it up. No, I think Billy, I think he's a very lucid killer. Mm. I think he has a tendency to live in, in those moments and allow them to get away. But he's got that side of him that is like Hannibal Lecter, like very calculating. Kill you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole thing, he's very smart. When you look at it, he never gets caught. He knows exactly where to hide, to hide his whole body. So you don't see him. He moves around the house with all these girls still there. Even when the police come, he knows he needs to go hide up in the attic. Yeah, he's incredibly elusive, isn't he? Yeah. 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 And he so does. A lot more ca- and the phone number. How is he phoning all the time? Oh yeah. Well, let's put a pin in that map. Let's get right back to that. But I just wanted to point out that you could say he was a very cowardly killer of opportunity who basically tries to, you know, catch you when you're asleep or completely unawares or you know something like that. Mm-hmm. But. He kills that cop out in the car who's watching the house. And that strikes me as, like, if you were really fearful, you would just, like, let that go on. But he sees that as a threat. So he he goes out, leaves the house on on a street, and murders an armed police officer in his car, like, without, I assume, like, a clever pretense... That takes some balls, and and that tells me that he is like thinking about eliminating the threats to to what he's what he's doing. Oh yeah, no, I agree one hundred percent. There's a reason he doesn't get caught, mm-hmm. and that we don't see him get caught. I think he's very calculated. And did he murder the girl in the park? Because yeah, we get the the phone call, the very first phone call, and the girl's already been missing. What we def- definitively do not know is Billy's whereabouts prior to when he enters this house. Like, we get yes. no clue about an institution being broken out of or any signal whatsoever where Billy was last week. And so there's a couple of things. Barb or someone references that they've gotten these calls in the past, before the movie starts. But mm-hmm. she says, oh, he's got some new material. So that, to me, was a clue that maybe they got your run-of-the-mill calls that Barb says she got to a day of in New York, and, you know, you've gotten them and everything else. So that's how I interpreted that. But I think Rich said he wondered if Billy had been calling them already, and he's just ramping up his behavior by finally going there. And it it begs the question, this is when I said, let's put a pin in the map, uh, which what I thought maybe you were getting into is the phone number that he's calling. Like, how does he get the number? And I understand they have two lines in this house, but something I was kind of questioning when we were looking at the movie, the three of us guys, was do they have the phone number of the line downstairs sitting next to the phone upstairs or something? Rotary phones, and I'd have to go back to look, but rotary phones generally in the center of the rotary 
there was the phone number. Like now, you, but that would be your own phone number, right? right? Yeah, See, but he would just have to look at that number oh, and go upstairs and call it. Got it. At some point, after he gets in through the attic, he's prowling around downstairs, sees, sees the phone mm-hmm. that he's going to be calling, and takes down that number or memorizes it. Well, here's the thing. Either he... We don't know that that's his first time in the house. Because mm-hmm. that could be where he grew up. That was uh, one of the ele- plot elements of the first remake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have to talk about that? No, honestly, we don't. But I, I, I at least tried to watch <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I didn't finish I, it. Yeah, I pitched that every time I went in for a meeting. I would pitch a remake of that because I Mm -hmm. so even if I couldn't pitch an idea for it, I so wanted somebody to do one. Yeah. And I was so excited when they when they said they were doing it. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be incredible. (laughs) Say what you want. Uh, It has its moments, but that that 2006 remake is not uh, is not incredible. You know what? Every every horror movie is great on one level or another. So I, I I don't mean to throw stone at all because I think that for the story that it was, not the original, it was its own unique take on an idea related to Black Christmas. At least compared to the next remake, it was pretty faithful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's a cult in the first Black Christmas uh, <laughs> remake. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But we can we leave get that. How sequels are made. Yeah. Sometimes they're not a true sequel at all. Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, uh, with the phone thing and his whereabouts, like I guess, what's your personal theory about? where Billy came from and how he came came to choose this house, I guess. Do you think well, he was he had a connection to it? I, I feel like he had to have a connection with the house mm-hmm. because to get the phone number and then... So you're making these random calls to a number. There's no reverse directory that's going to point you to that address. Yeah. So he had to know that house. So, and we don't, again, we don't know that that's his first time in the house. And the fact that he knew his way around the house, to me, it, it felt almost as if he's probably been there before. Well, and my, again, he could have been living in that attic for a while. We just don't know what happens before the film starts. Right, right. I, I would say... Otherwise, it's random. He seems Sorry. closer, he seems closer to the age that like Michael Myers is when he breaks out of his institution in Halloween, meaning like mm-hmm. I, I get a could be literally anywhere from like 18 to 30 sort of a vibe from Billy, but not older. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't, I don't get yeah, an older vibe. No, I feel like, I feel like he matches with the Peter age. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty well. Absolutely. Early 20s. Right. And, you know, whatever happened, like, let's say this was his childhood home where the crime occurred. He's young. He's not Michael Myers young, probably. You know, like, let's say maybe he's 10 or 12 at the youngest, probably, Mm -hmm. when all this goes down the first time. So we're not talking more than 10, 15, at the most 20 years go by. 
is it possible that like the, the a sorority buys that house during that span absolutely something rich said i don't know like where he got this exactly but i wondered like I don't know much about sororities, even though my my wife was in one. But is is Mrs. Mack like a former member of the sorority, and that's kind of you know how she would end up in this job? And if so, I mean that would suggest some longevity. And of course, sororities can move houses or or whatever. But it just seems like slightly unlikely that a sorority would would choose this house where that shit happened within that relatively short period of time. But here's the thing. We don't know what happened in the past. Yeah. We don't know if anybody got murdered in the past. Right. We assume he killed the baby. We don't know that for sure because they're Mm -hmm. looking for the baby. Yeah. So we don't even know what exactly happened or if there was fallout from any of it. I mean, he could have been, as opposed to being institutionalized, like his parents just locked him up for however long. Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Again, real estate, and if it's cheap, and as long as you don't tell the occupants. Right. Like the university might buy it cheap. Yeah. I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I have no problem with it. I just, the movie definitely does almost goes out of its its way not to connect those kind of dots. Um, of course. But yeah. you just want to go on the ride, too. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah. That is the kind of mythology that people in subsequent films and eras of film, like, f- really wanted to have, whether it's just, you know, meddling studio execs or something. But, but yeah, the idea that that would be him coming back to his house seems like something that would almost be a foregone conclusion in, in later films to connect that. Uh, oh, but, 100%. Yeah. yeah. But I guess I, I think I, I had never truly thought of the, the connection between the phone number and him. At some point, he had to get the address. Like, the address. Like, he had to. Well, if he was calling from somewhere else. If, my, he's, the, if he's originally their caller. My yeah. theory is no, he's not. Yeah. My theory is yeah. they were getting the routine calls as it probably any mm-hmm. sorority house would, right? Of course. Uh, yeah, and then he he comes in there and takes advantage of this aspect to, to play out his little psychodrama. We don't know how long he's been in the house because he does observe and repeat and mimic. Then the question always is, well, why now, right? Like, because he hasn't heard, if he's been here before, he hasn't heard anyone until now. So there's something about Christmas or there's something about this night or I don't know, but like tonight he decides it's going off. So my assumption was it was going to go off whenever Billy got wherever he got rather than uh, he's been... Yeah, yeah, okay, well... Yeah, I mean, whether or not he's been there for a couple of days before he kills Claire, oh, I think yeah. is Im- immaterial almost, you know, uh-huh. but the idea would be, is Billy going to kill people almost immediately because that's just what's going to happen, or did something set him off? Yeah. That's what I don't know, you know. Yeah. I don't think there's any catalyst uh, that we see beyond opportunity. We don't. You know? We don't. Yeah. He's such a wonderful character. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You can spend forever just guessing or speculating, or yeah, that's what I love about this film. Yeah, I think you do. It resonates long after. It does. 
Yeah, one of the great things that Bob Clark did was just to decide to keep him as mysterious as possible, visually and otherwise. Mm-hmm. See, that's what I love, too, is that we never see him. Yeah. We see his uh, the eyeball when you see his eye. <laughs> <laughs> it's the scariest thing ever. And they do such a great job with the camera and lighting that you don't even properly see his iris. It's, oh, I know. so creepy. And he's got a red contact lens in his eye. Yeah. I watched special features and they said, uh-huh. like, they, they put a contact lens in. The idea of there just being this unearthly, weird, yeah, that red, it, yeah, it just captures the insanity of him very well. It's a great choice, I think. It truly is. And I also like that he's human in the sense of when he's chasing, like, she hurts him. And then he's chasing after her and he stumbles and it's not the typical boogeyman where he's unstoppable and he's just going to come you oh, know, yeah. like michael myers or whatever it's very human which is also unsettling yeah i think one of the scariest things about theoretically slasher killers yeah before you turn them into true boogeymen is that it's real and like yeah. we don't have to worry about a werewolf or a vampire coming through our window, but some dude, yeah, sure. Of course, that dude, you kick him in the balls, it's going to hurt him. That, But that just means it's real, not that he can't yes. do horrible things to you. <laughs> I know, uh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. All day long, I will say, humans scare me more yeah. than a ghost or a vampire or whatever, because humans are capable of anything. Absolutely. And they're they're not a myth or a legend. <laughs> no. <laughs> they are like right here. They walk the earth. <laughs> they do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, this guy definitely is much more in that tradition. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll throw it out to you quickly. I'm sure I can come up sure. with a couple more things we want to hit. But like, is there anything that you kind of walked into this conversation wanting to talk about that that we haven't covered yet? The main thing was the, the Billy's voice when he's just matter of fact. Yeah. Chills me to the bone. So uh, glad you mentioned that. Yeah, because it's such a contrast to everything else. Like the time where he's completely lucid is where he just says, I'm going to kill you. Yes. <laughs> and that's when you know you're in real trouble. Yeah, and then he hangs up. <laughs> <laughs> because now you've just, you've broken his imaginary bubble by not playing into his sick fantasies right. and letting him go on his rant. Now he's just mad. Now you're yeah. just dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it boils down to a resolute decision of what's going to happen. And <laughs> right. you're not going to like it. <laughs> you're not. The unicorn's coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue because, yeah, my other favorite thing, um, and I'm sure I'm omitting something I'm going to kick myself later, but my other kind of favorite thing to talk about with this movie is kind of the Margot Kidder character, the Margot Kidder performance, and uh-huh. sort of her character's place in the house. And let me tell you, like, quickly my interpretation of her role in the sorority and how I found that poignant and let me know like if you thought of that if you have a different read on it or what you what you if you agree with it it was that Mrs. Mack is a you mentioned that she's smart yeah I mean she I think she's witty and she's seen it all and I agree with you at that point but I think on on those points but I, I think she's an unfit protector 
of these women, oh, yeah. you know? Oh, no, she's not invested in them. Right, and she's kind of incompetent. In paycheck and the alcohol. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, for all of these reasons, she's not going to defend them and keep them safe in the night, right? Whereas mm-hmm. Barb is from New York. She's seen it all. She's tough. She has a bad relationship with her mother, and she's that doesn't help her in this situation. But I mean, it's just that she's strong and jaded. And I feel like she is kind of the one that the girls might think would spearhead their defense. And she does to the point of, you know, the going to the police station and all of that kind of stuff. But the combination of her guilt over, what happens with Claire, which I think she acknowledges when she just gets way too drunk and goes to bed and passes out and is totally vulnerable and thus (laughs) dies, right? But she feels like she failed Claire by, you know, that they had harsh words and Claire went off to bed and something happened to Claire or whatever. But, like, I feel like she takes responsibility for being the one that handles the prank calls and puts everyone at ease and everything. And, ah, it's nothing to worry about and stuff. Whereas she really is feeling a lot of disquiet and dread over what's happening. But she kind of keeps it inside and unfortunately just channels it into getting drunk. I I totally agree that she's the one that is brash. She's the one yeah. that probably has taught them how to stand up for themselves and to say anything and to find their empowerment. Right. But she's also the most dysfunctional of them all. She's mm-hmm. also the mess. And I do feel like they've put her to bed more times than they can count because she does drink too much and she says too much. She's more of a house mother in terms of <laughs> Mrs. Mack. Mrs. Mac is just there for the paycheck. <laughs> yeah. And the booze. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Her guilt over all of that, and I think the whole situation with her mother. Right. Yeah, like her mother doesn't want her to come home for Christmas. And so she's just like, fine, let's go skiing. Like, that's how I interpreted that. All of it is kind of pushing her towards not being. She kind of goes down the Mrs. Mac road, you know, and, and instead of being well she's the future mrs Mac. right right exactly exactly she, she totally is and then yeah she she talks without thinking a lot of times too mm-hmm. which is why she has no problem picking on claire until claire goes missing and then that's the big slap in the face because not only does her mother not want her but maybe her friends don't want her anymore because she chased claire away Right. If something happened to Claire, it's all her fault. Yeah, like Claire's kind of the goody-goody, and she's sort of offended by Barb, but like clearly they're they're not peas in a pod, Claire and Barb, and they so they have some friction. And yeah, yeah. Claire doesn't want to go skiing with, with Barb. But you know what's really interesting? Claire is not a total goody-goody, because no. if you look at the posters in her room, <laughs> yes. she is not. I, know. I noticed and that. She's dating a player. Yeah, with that coat. <laughs> Not just a hockey player, but a. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of his coat? What is that? Raccoon or something? So, I... Yeah. It's real. I know that. Yeah, yeah no, it looks real. <laughs> Apparently, uh, that guy's mother gave him that uh, on a previous movie. 
and he showed up for like the audition or something wearing it and Bob Clark or the costume designer at some point either or both said just bring bring the coat (laughs) (laughs) it's iconic it it really is for that era especially in Canada like that was like a big thing if you had a fur coat (laughs) like that you were cool (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) yeah Oh yeah, that's a. I guess that's a good thing to ask you as as a Canadian. Sure. Like, what are some things that just felt super Canadian to you? Oh, like ninety percent of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can tell you what was tried to be American. That really, right. if you're Canadian, you just know. Like they talk about Scarborough. Scarborough <laughs> is a area of Toronto. I was born in Scarborough. Oh, wow. <laughs> the little sad American flag. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. really? <laughs> the American stuff was, you know, that decision to open up the, the film to greater international box office. Uh, you know, just American yeah. movies got... Apparently, yeah, there were not a lot of Canadian movies uh, that would get international distribution at that time. No. There still aren't a lot that, that do. I, I yeah. feel like it's getting much better, but yeah. So I get I get the desire to be an American film and to and it broke so many boundaries. And the fact that so many it, it's got such a fan base in the US and all over the world is incredible. It's one of the most well known Canadian movies ever. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And it should be, you know. I mean it's a it's a well, wonderful movie. Even my niece told me like one of the first things because she's at that age where she's really into horror movies and she's trying to like study them and and because she wants to do fx makeup and Mm -hmm. it was really interesting one of the first things she said to me when i saw her this year was canada invented the slasher film yes yes (laughs) and i'm like we did (laughs) yeah black christmas Black Christmas is the best movie ever. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, here's an 18-year-old who that makes me happy. that. Yeah, it makes me happy too. I'm like, you are a, a Craig. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, this, the epic continues. The next generation will, who knows right? what she'll bring yeah. to the industry. I hope a lot. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Sort of doubling back to the concept and the script and everything, I I did kind of want to ask your thoughts on the idea that this was inspired by an urban legend, you know, the babysitter and the calls are coming from inside the house and all of that. And apparently real murders that happened in um, Montreal, apparently. And that was, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. How did I know that? I got it from sort of really basically the Wikipedia, honestly. I mean, I, I, I don't know that it came up in the commentary. <laughs> I gotta go read it. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, like, the original screenwriter who brought the project to Bob Clark under the title Stop Me was kind of based on, on these sort of, I guess, babysitter murders type things. And I think even his very first script might have been called the babysitter or something like that then they aged it up and turned it into you know more of a college age thing yeah it was based on kind of a combination of real things and that sort of 
hoary old urban legend about the you know yeah. police tracing the babysitters threatening calls to inside the house which i certainly remember growing up with do you were you aware of that yes. urban legend yes well i remember when a stranger calls yeah yeah that was of that era and yeah based on the same concept mm-hmm. yes but i feel like everything starts with like an urban legend i i think mm-hmm. at least for me like that's how my imagination grew as a horror writer is that I loved all of that stuff. If it was real, I wanted to know it. I wanted to read it. I wanted to think about it and let it guide me to different places for writing. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not surprised. I, well, I'm surprised about the, the story. Now, after we are done this, I am so going to go look that up because that, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, it's interesting. And I should probably know that because like that, there wasn't a whole lot going on. <laughs> well, it was in Montreal. I mean, it's not like it was in Toronto where you were. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like that would be national news. Yeah. I feel like yeah, it. Yeah. In that era, that, that I feel like that would be something that would be so shocking. What's interesting, though, like, there, I don't think there's an actual Wikipedia article about the murders, so, yeah, I'm not even sure where to sort of take up the the investigation there. But... I will find it. Yeah. <laughs> if it is out there, I will find it. <laughs> now cool. you got my curiosity. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, that's where we all start. We all start with the nugget of an idea for something, like something that scares us. Like, your ideas come from nuggets of, of things you experience or you oh, yeah. see or we're so lucky that we get to bring those ideas to life uh, to write them to explore them to hopefully share with other people i know it's always so, so sad when a, when a good idea does you know go unshared because um right? they're 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 wonderful special things that should be nurtured into life if at all possible <laughs> i i agree 100 percent and you know, I always, not to go off on a writing tangent, but hmm. I always feel like every script, regardless of whether it's somebody's idea of a good script or a bad script, you've brought something to life. You've gotten this amazing world you've created, and I always wish that they got, I, I wish there was a way to get those even just read by people. Yeah. Uh, even if it can't be shot or bought or whatever. Writers have sat down and they've spent hours upon hours, days, sometimes months, years writing these things. They should be shared and appreciated. I know. It's the it's the it's such a sad dichotomy between fiction and the screenplay form where you can tell okay. these wonderful magical stories that unless the movie gets made, only a very few people will ever experience. Versus theoretically, you know, you write it in in fiction and nobody has to put up millions of dollars to to experience it. Yeah, you can self-publish it. I wish there was an audience of readers for that type of thing that you could do on Amazon. Like, that would be great. Yeah. I wrote a script. I'm just going to self-publish it. Here's the logline. If you want to read it, read it. Yeah, if you enjoy, enjoy this it. form, right, yeah. you know, and, and it's a great form. I mean, it's so much easier to read and digestible and uh, quicker, obviously, you know. I mean, it, it, it should yeah. be a literary form, really, like an experience in its own right. I remember reading a script, and I can't mention it uh, right now because uh, it, it hasn't made its way through the contest season, 
Uh, but mm-hmm. I, it, it's moving up in, in my contest, and I just remember reading it and just being so spellbound by it. And it was a wonderful, wonderful reading experience, just as a screenplay. Yeah. And terrifying, I've, I've by the way. So many of those that are just like, they leave your jaw on the floor. Yeah. They're so well written, or they capture the essence of something, and it just blows your mind. It's always so sad when, <laughs> when you don't know what happens with it later because it never gets made. So you don't know if it's really led somewhere. And you just hope that everybody has the opportunity to read it. I agree. Very random. But do you think this is the sure. best Christmas horror movie ever made? I mean, I think that's we, we know, but it has to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> no love for that's Silent Night, Deadly Night? Night. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Not even that Tales from the Crypt episode. <laughs> well, okay, how about Holiday? Yeah. Period, Holiday. So, <laughs> 4th of July, like... <laughs> apparently, uh, I just, I'm looking at another Wikipedia page, but apparently The Return of the Living Dead is classified as Holiday because it's like July 3rd, I believe. <laughs> I did not know that, okay. Yeah, and of course, Sorry, Blood Rage. The zombies in Day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Blood Rage, which I don't know if you've seen, but you must. It's a Thanksgiving-themed horror film, slasher. I have not. Okay. I just discovered it, too. It was not on my radar until we started doing this season of the show. I'll let you know where to see it. And it's it's very... Right. It's... Okay. This is not Black Christmas. All right. I want to get that out of the way (laughs) right now. But it is a trip. And it, it is closer to... Uh, so so bad it's good, but I I just you know I'm kind of blown kind of kind of blown away yeah. by it at the same time. Okay, so let's let's wrap up the tangents. Um, I did want to ask you. You you talked about this fan film that you contributed to. It's me, Billy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What was the story there? Because <laughs> I love Black Christmas. Occasionally, mm-hmm. sometimes I will just randomly Google stuff, and I always I old posters and stuff like that i ran across it was a kickstarter for its for a fan made and produced film which was a sequel to black christmas called it's me billy and i believe you can watch it on youtube it's 40 minutes um but i contributed to it i think they got over 50k to make their movie and nice. it was, it's really well shot. It's really well shot. There's a lot of fun stuff in it. I want to see it. I will. That's great. Everybody's got different opinions as to what happens after the film. So it's really cool to see somebody follow it through. And it was, I believe there were two creators of it. So Dave McRae and Bruce Dale. For the amount of money they had, it's really nicely shot. Like, it's a rising with that low of a budget that they put it together to bring so those good. kinds of visuals to the to the screen yeah and yeah. the acting is really good too wow awesome awesome right. well yeah anyone listening go ahead and check that out on youtube or vimeo it's me billy us diehards need to experience that for sure what's some of your your black christmas swag or uh, memorabilia or whatever that you've accumulated well, I have like lobby cards and nice. like that. I have the press book, and the press book is really cool because within it, when and I didn't realize it when I bought it. I bought it years ago on eBay. When I got it, it actually had they did a promotional newspaper, college newspaper. That's about so cool. The murders. 
And then in the press book, you could actually order all the different types of, of posters or uh, lobby cards, everything like that. And I wish I'd had it back then because I would have ordered it all. Oh, <laughs> but yeah. now I'm just trying to piecemeal it together. I really, really want the anniversary poster that they did. Oh, that's so good. The red one. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to buy there. There's a place online that's that's doing it, but I, I would sooner buy it from either the artist or a one on eBay that I know mm-hmm. is authentic from that period of time and not somebody reprinting. Yeah. I also will say that some of the posters that are up on eBay seem like they're mm-hmm. copies that have Bootleg. been done because they're mm-hmm. all the yeah, they're all the same number oh. out of a I think it's one fifty. Yeah. But it's different sellers and different quality. If they had props that were available <laughs> for Black Christmas, uh-uh, I would buy those props. If I could find that coat, I would buy that coat. <laughs> I would not wear that coat, but I would just like to have it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, if there was anything about this movie, like your final thoughts that you want people to, to hear about what makes this movie endure for you, why you keep coming back to it, why it scares you so much, and, and anything along those lines that you just want to, you know, close out with. The tone, the atmosphere, the acting, the dialogue, the, the tension building, the silences that are filled with so much, the, oh, yeah. the lovely juxtaposition of the Christmas music with that funky awful piano strikes i just yeah that avant-garde score right yeah and it truly is a well-written horror movie yes it's got depth it's got character these are things that we don't often see anymore because it's often given up for scares or quick pacing just see it just I, i wish i could tell everybody and they would listen to me and just watch it you know just tell someone else how much you love this movie right if you take one thing away from this tell someone that you haven't told before to go see black christmas and here's a moment that like just i think encapsulates what you're talking about that you just don't see in these movies but yet is kind of what storytelling can lead you to moments like this and it's so rich and powerful and fucked up it's when mr harrison claire's dad lays eyes on the other missing girl in the park. James Edmund delivers a wonderful performance in this moment. But you see in his eyes where he registers first the horror of seeing this corpse in this park, and then the relief as well as he realizes it's not his daughter. Just to put that kind of a moment and realize it at that kind of level in a movie of any genre is just like such a a rich and complex yeah. and fucked up thing. And at the end, it pays off when mm-hmm. they're in the room with Jess and you think she's safe when he finally starts to register those other girls are dead. Yeah, so he, where's he, his daughter? Yeah, he basically passes out and has to be carried out yeah. at that point. That's a really good point. I hadn't really thought of that. But that's kind of the culmination of his arc. Like going from that sort of relief of maybe my daughter's still alive to where we leave that Mm -hmm. character. We know know he knows she's not alive at that point. Yeah. Yeah. The chances are beyond 
Yeah, they haven't found her body, but yeah. he goes to pieces, as yeah. as you would expect, but in a very restrained Canadian way. It's <laughs> <laughs> very Canadian. <laughs> uh, well, who better for me to talk to about this movie than you? <laughs> it's been such a pleasure, Karen. You're the best. Thank you so You're much. The best. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll, we'll talk again in the future about some other things. Yeah, that would be fun. Uh, to all our listeners, hope you've enjoyed this. This concludes our discussion of Black Christmas. Some of you might be happy after God knows how many hours this podcast is spent on it. But uh, yeah, we'll be on to Texas Chainsaw Massacre original of course next so tune in for that soon i hope and until then take care everyone adios